We're in the prison epistles. Today we're doing the letter to the Philippians. Who can name the prison epistles? That's one. That's two. If you... Technically no, but yes. Second Timothy was written while he was in prison. Ephesians 1. Did you say one, Jessica? I thought you said something. Okay. There's one more. Colossians. There you go. Unlike the other prison epistles, this epistle is very personal. Edmund Hebert wrote about the letter to the Philippians. He said, Paul's letter to the Philippians is like an open window into the apostle's very heart. In it we have the artless outpouring of his unrestrained love for and his unalloyed joy in his devoted and loyal Philippian friends. It is the most intimate and spontaneous of his writings. You might say this is kind of a love letter. And we'll look at later how much he kind of pours out his heart to the Philippians. But before we get to that, let's just talk about the city of Philippi. Because that's where we start with all these letters. Where is the city of Philippi? What is it? Um, Philippi sits right there. And Paul goes there on his second missionary journey. It's a fortified city in Macedonia. And it's right on the border, on the Thracian border. So here's Thrace, and Philippi is just right there on the border of Thrace. And it sat on a major highway. Anybody know the name of the highway that it sat on? Man, we got some scholars in here. No, Dig. I have a, I have a new oh, you, you should have just left it at a scholar. <laughs> it was far more impressive. <laughs> it sat on the Ignatian Way. The Ignatian Way was this large trade route. And if you look at this map, hopefully you guys can all see this. See this black line that goes from here all the way to the other side of the map? That's the Ignatian Way. And so if you were over here and you wanted to get to Rome, you jump on the Ignatian Way and you have one road all the way in. And Philippi was the very first city that you would come to on the Ignatian Way as you enter into Macedonia. And so it was kind of this border crossing slash intersection of all this traffic that was going into or toward Rome. And the Ignatian Way actually divided the city of Philippi in half. There was a northern portion and a southern portion. They called it Upper and Lower Town. The Upper Town contained the citadel. And it sat on the rocky uh, slopes of this hill that kind of overlooked the plain. And then the Lower Town had the center, the city center. And the square, it had the town and the forum and the market. They actually did some excavations in Philippi, in, lower t in the lower town. And they found in the city center was a large rostrum, which would be like a stage for speaking. And it sat right in the middle of the forum. Uh, remember in Acts 16, which we'll be looking at later, Paul and Silas were dragged into the town center? This may have been where they were taken, was to this rostrum, to be presented before everybody. The city was originally called... Crinides. Crinides. It means little fountains. 
because the area has all these small little springs in it. And not too far away from the city is a large river, which we'll be talking about today as well. What about the history? The area was seized by a guy named... Philippi is named after who? Anybody know? Philip. Philip of Macedon came in and took over. He was a Macedonian, obviously. He's Philip II. He was the father to... See, I told you. Alexander the Great. And he established a large colony there in Macedon. And he named it, because he was so humble, he named it after himself. And he called it Philippi. That was normal. One of the reasons he wanted this little region where Philippi sat is because of what was there. Not only was it in a plain, not only did it have the Ignatian Way, but it had something else. Gold mines. Now the gold mines had largely been depleted by the time Philip of Macedon gets there, but he gets there and he realizes there's still gold here. And in fact, he makes use of the, the, those gold mines to where he's able to extract roughly a thousand talents of gold per year. Now, if you want to put that in perspective, by the time you get to the New Testament, the nation of Israel collected around 600 talents of gold every year from the nation. So a thousand talents of gold every year, pretty good. And it allows him not only to build up the fortress there, but it allows him to build his army and do other things, like influence his neighbors. Um, I have this quote. I revised the quote a little bit because he used terminology I didn't want to use in church. Mm-hmm. Philip of Macedon said, No fortress was impregnable to whose walls a donkey laden with gold could not be driven. I don't need to take my army against your walls. As long as I can take a donkey full of gold and send him into your walls, you'll do what I want. If I can pay the king enough, he'll give me what I want. And that was his strategy, and that's what he did. And Philip of Macedon ruled that area for quite some time. In fact, he ruled it until 167 B.C., when another empire shows up. Any guesses? Who shows up? The Romans. The Romans show up in 167 and they conquer Philippi and they actually divide the region into four sections. And one of those sections was called Philippi. Later in 146, that's roughly 20 years later, they combined those regions back into a Roman province and they just called the Roman province Philippi. In 42 BC, there was another battle. Some leaders of Rome had a big battle. Anybody ever heard of Mark Antony and Octavian? Well, they had this massive battle there at Philippi. And the winners of that battle decide, well, this is going to become a very important town. And so Octavian ends up making it a Roman colony, and he sends a bunch of his retired soldiers to live there. Luke in Luke and uh, excuse me in Acts 16:12 called uh, Philippi a leading city in the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony. Now they debate what it means by a leading city. Some say it means that Philippi was the capital of that area, but that's not true because there's another city Amphipolis was the capital. 
Others say it was the leading city because it was the first city that you got to when you entered in through from Thrace. Others just say refer to the prominence of the city, or the prominence of that particular district in the Roman Empire. The honest reality is people don't really know why Luke called it a leading city, but he just did. Philippi was a leading city in the sense that it was granted certain special privileges in the Roman Empire. I think we've talked about this before with other cities that were granted special privileges. The city was made equivalent to the cities that were in Italy. It was a city just like the Italian cities were and it had the same status. It, one of the benefits it had was that it was exempt from oversight by a local governor. You think of about uh, Pontius Pilate in Israel had rule and authority over the local government of Israel. Philippi had a local government, but that local government was not under the control of a Roman governor. Their local Roman governor had no authority there. The city of Philippi answered to the emperor. It was also exempted from poll and property taxes. That's a nice little benefit to have. I don't have to pay taxes. And citizens there had full rights to property ownership under Roman law. They were complete, full citizens of the Roman Empire. And they had all the rights and privileges any Roman citizen would have. And this city was thoroughly Roman. And they were very proud to be Romans. It's kind of like, you know, America, you know. But they didn't say America. They said Rome. You know. <laughs> Edmund Hebert said, As a Roman colony, it was uh, in ideal... Wow. It was in ideal a miniature reproduction of the city of the Rome. The spirit and practices of Rome prevailed. The official language was Latin, but a knowledge of the Greek was a necessity for all of its residents. They were so proud to be Roman. They dressed like Romans. They talked like Romans. They built their buildings like Romans. They copied architecture, fashion, design, dress. Even their money had Roman inscriptions on it. They were very proud to be a part of Rome. So who's the population of this city? Who's living in Philippi? Well, there's three main groups. As you can imagine, these groups on the Ignatian Way and the fact that you have this military. The first group is the Roman colonists. People moved there by the Roman Empire. And a lot of these are military veterans. They get out of battle, they get out of the army, and they're moved over to Philippi. The second group are native Macedonians. They, they were there already, and they just stayed there when the Romans took over. And the third group are Gentiles from the east. If you remember that picture of the highway that comes in, there's a lot of travelers who come through that area, and then they just stop and decide, I'm going to stay here instead of keeping going. So the area was predominantly Gentiles. Predominantly Gentiles. Um, but there weren't a lot of Jews there. There was a very small contingent of Jews in the region. And we know that because they didn't have a synagogue there. And I'll prove that in a little bit from the text, but just file that away. They did not have a synagogue. Paul arrives in Philippi around 52 AD, and he arrives on his second missionary journey. But he didn't get there because he planned to go. Paul didn't plan to go to Philippi. Um, 
he went there because all of his other options were cut off and he was told you're not allowed to go there. So go in your Bible real quick. I want to show you how this church was founded. Acts 16 gives us the founding of the church at Philippi. Paul had great plans. And then, you know, several times he had his plans changed. So the second missionary journey starts at the end of Acts 15. Uh, let's jump down to verse 6. They passed through the Phrygian and Galatian regions, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Paul's original plan was, I'm going to go back to the churches I've already founded and encourage and strengthen them. And he gets there and the Spirit says, sorry, Paul, you're not doing that. Just keep on going. So he decides, well, okay, I'll preach in Mysia and Bithynia. Verse 7. And after they came to Mysia, they were trying to go into Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. And passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas. So once again, Paul's plans, not allowed to happen. But even in Troas, Paul gets to Troas and he thinks, well, hey, this will be great. I can set up a base of operation here. I can start doing ministry here in Troas. But yeah, he wasn't allowed to do that either. Acts 16, verse 19, A division appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. When he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go out into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So three times Paul has a plan, I'm going to do ministry here, and three times the Spirit of God says, No, you're not doing it here. You're going somewhere else. And so Paul goes to Macedonia by divine appointment. Literally, you're going to Macedonia. And it seems that the author of the book of Acts joins Paul while Paul's in Troas. How do we know that? Look at verse 6. Acts 16, verse 6. They pass through. That's Luke speaking about somebody else. Verse 7. After they came they were going to go. You see that? See the pronouns? Verse 8, they came down to Troas. But then look at verse 10. When he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach. So it would appear that here in Troas, Luke joins up with Paul. Right. Because it went from a third person of pronoun to a first. So Paul gets this vision in Troas. He and his good friend Luke get on a ship and they head out to um, their next port. But they're not alone. Anybody know who's with them? Who? Not Mark. No. It's, um, I think someone else saw it. Uh, Silas is with them. Acts 15, verse 40. But Paul chose Silas and left being committed by the brethren to the grace of the Lord. Mark was, was with him earlier. Timothy is also with him. Timothy joined them in Lystra. If you look at Acts 16, 1, Paul also came to Derby and to Lystra. And a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman, who was a believer... But his father was a Greek. 
Verse 3, Paul wanted this man to go with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews that were there. Yes. It's the same Timothy. And so Paul, Timothy, Silas, and now Luke all get on a boat, and they're headed out to go to Philippi. Uh, Acts 16, verse 11. Let's only read that. So putting out to sea from Troas, we ran in straight course to Samothrace, and on the day following to Neapolis. Troas, Samothrace, Neapolis. Neapolis was the port of Philippi. It was their port that they used. But notice he says there in verse 11, we ran a straight course. This likely refers to them having really good weather. Again, another evidence of divine appointment. If you're sailing by the wind, you want good weather. And they get on the boat and they have really good weather. F.F. Uh, F. Bruce. F.F. F. Bruce translates the Greek word uh, used there, before a favorable wind. They sailed with favorable winds. Also, note, they arrived in two days. It took them one day to get to Samothrace and one day to get to Neapolis. But if you hold your spot there in Acts 16, go over to Acts 20 real quick. This is on the return journey back. They're coming from Macedonia and they're going back to Troas. Acts 20, uh, verse 6. Would someone want to read that? Um. And we sailed from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread and came to them at Troas within five days. And there we stayed seven days. We came to them at Troas within how many days? Five days. The little trip that took two days to go from here to here on the return trip took almost five days. Weather wasn't as cooperative going home. So their trip out there, they had really good weather. Acts 10, 16, verse 11, they arrive in Neapolis, and then they travel the 11 miles from Neapolis to Philippi. Acts 16, verse 12, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony, and we, we were staying in the city for some days. So they get to the city and they don't immediately begin doing ministry. They begin just trying to get acquainted with the city and they spend a couple days in the city getting to know people, probably finding a place to stay and just kind of getting acquainted. Verse 13, And on the Sabbath day we went outside the gate to a riverside where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer and we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. Now, remember I said there was no synagogue? This is how we know that. First, notice that Paul went on the Sabbath day. This was normal for Paul. This is how Paul operated. He would arrive in a place, and then on the Sabbath, he would go to the synagogue. Mark your spot again. Acts 13, verse 14. But going on from Perga, they arrived in Pisidian Antioch, and on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. Sat down, he began to teach. Uh, Acts 14, verse 1. He gets to Iconium. In Iconium they entered the synagogue of the Jews together and spoke in such a manner that a large number of the people believed, both Jews and Greeks. Acts 17, verse 2. 
And according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures. Acts 18, verse 4. And he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. Last one, Acts 19, verse 18. 19, verse 8, excuse me. And he entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. And we can go back to Acts 16. Paul's custom, his normal practice, was to get in the city, and then on the Sabbath, when the Jews would be there, go into the synagogue and begin his evangelism. Probably not if it was in a private place, but being that this was an open worship service, that was where they were worshiping. So, probably not something that he would do on his own outside of that. Yeah. Good question, though. But notice here in Acts 16, Paul doesn't go to the synagogue. He goes to the river. There's a river there right outside of Philippi. It's outside the city. He goes outside of the city, and he goes to the river where he assumes there's going to be a place of prayer because there's no synagogue inside the city. A normal synagogue would have required 10 Jewish men to form the synagogue. But here what you have is you have a group of women. Uh, Acts 16 verse 13 says these are women, primarily women. And so he goes to this group and he begins to evangelize and he begins to preach the gospel. And his ministry has almost immediate fruit. Acts 16 verse 14. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. She hears the gospel, she opens up her heart, God opens her heart, and she's saved. And she is eager to begin helping in the ministry. Very next verse. And when she and her, her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. She was tenaciously all about, Paul, you're going to come and stay with me, and you're going to do ministry from my house. And that's where we're going to build. She and her household. This is actually one of the first places where we find a, someone being saved, and all of their household also being saved at the same time. From here on out, you'll see it occur more and more. But she and her entire house believe. Now you might ask, well, what about the husband? Why isn't the husband here mentioned? Well, it's either because she's a widow or she's single, and so she seems to be the head of the house. F.F. Bruce, Lydia appears to have been the head of the house we may conclude that she was unmarried or a widow. In that case, her household would include servants and other dependents, perhaps some of the women there. So it would have included her children, her servants, if she had any. That would be her household. And there seem to be quite a few women in the church. Philippians 4 verse 2, he says, I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche to live in harmony in the Lord. Of the few names that are mentioned... In Philippians, two of them are women in the church. We don't know much about Euodia and Syntyche, but 
We do know they had some quarrels. They were disputing. It probably wasn't doctrinal because Paul didn't rebuke them for their bad error. They may have been a part of the group there on that first day that Paul was preaching on the Sabbath. We don't know. Not only does he have some new converts, but she says, look, move in. Build your base of operation here. Isn't that just like a new believer? I just want to get to work. Just let me do something. After that conversion, Paul is arrested. Because that's another custom of Paul's to get arrested. <laughs> this is what he does quite a bit. I think he liked it, but it <laughs> I don't think he was looking for it, but you know, he seemed to stay every night in the jail, so he he, he was very good at getting arrested. Yes. Is it true that in those days, I feel like it was, I'm not sure, I think it was John MacArthur, but is it true that in ancient times if you were put in prison, in a lot of cases they wouldn't feed you, and so it was up to believers to bring you food and take care of you? Yeah, in a lot of cases. And in some countries that's still true today. Uh, in Turkey, if you get arrested and you get thrown in prison, they're not going to feed you. It's up to your family. Paul gets thrown in jail. He meets the Philippian jailer, and he does what Paul does, and he converts the jailer. And when Paul is released from jail, where does he go? Acts 16, verse 40. They went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia. Still his base of operation. She's still serving. She's still there. That becomes a church, right? Yeah, that probably became the church. Philemon says it was in a house. And so, did it stay there? Did it move? We're not real sure. Could have been in both houses, possibly. Just depends on how big the congregation was. So, Acts 16, just that one little chapter, records three conversions in Philippi. And Paul seems to have been there for only a few days. And you have Lydia, who is a Jewish proselyte. You have a Roman jailer, who's a Gentile. And then you have a Gentile slave girl, in Acts 16.16, who has a demon cast out of her, and she's saved as well. Two Gentiles and one Jew seems to be very much what the population of Philippi was. Philip Schaff, Lydia, the purple dealer of Thyatira and a half-proselyte to Judaism, a native slave girl with a divining spirit which was used by her masters as means of gaining among the superstitious heathen and a Roman jailer, were the first converts and fitly represent the three nationalities, Jew, Greek, and Roman, and the classes of society which were especially benefited by Christianity. And all the available evidence says that the congregation of the Philippian church had the same kind of makeup. Primarily Gentiles with a few Jews in that, in that congregation. And Paul, for his short period of time there, seems to have built a really good relationship with the Philippians. And it was a reciprocal relationship. He loved them, and they loved him. In the other letters, you find some harsh rebukes. In this one, you find nothing but love. And even when Paul gives them a warning or an admonishment, it's one of those loving admonishments. Like, hey, that's not a good idea. Don't do that. <laughs> There's not really any harsh rebukes here. And his affection for them is obvious. 
Six times through the letter, he refers to them as brethren and calls them brothers in Christ. Let's go over to Philippians here. Philippians 1, verse 12. And I want you to know, brethren, Philippians 3, verse 1. Finally, my brethren, Philippians 3, verse 13. Brethren, I do not regard myself. Verse 17. Brethren, join me in following my example. Chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, my beloved brethren. And that's another term of affection that he uses, is beloved. Chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Beloved twice. My beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. He just couldn't find the words to express how much he loved them. It's like he's got all this passion and, and, and love for them, and it's just pouring out of him. Uh, Edmund Hebert said, he seems hardly able to find words to pour out the fullness of his love for his readers. And so he's just throwing adjectives out there <laughs> in adverbs. And you can see this affection for the Philippians and what he writes about them. If you go back to chapter 1, would someone read verses 3 through 5? Paul prays for them daily. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first until now. Yeah. Every time I remember you, I thank God for you. That's some affection. Mm-hmm. Verse 7. Would someone else read verse 7? It is only right for me to feel this way about you all. Because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in, my, in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. Verse 8, he says, For God is my witness, how I long for you with the affection of Christ. Chapter, that? chapter 1. What? Chapter 1, verse 8. I long to be with you. I long and desire to be in your presence. And the Philippians also share the same kind of love and affection for Paul. And they demonstrate that love and affection by their giving to Paul. Uh, chapter 4, verse 15. He says, You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. He leaves Philippi, and he goes and he starts preaching in places like Thessalonica. And remember in the Thessalonians, he said, I work with my own hands. Nobody was giving him anything at that point. The only church supporting him was Philippi. And it wasn't just a one-time deal. It was this ongoing, continuous giving. Verse 16 of chapter 4. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Verse 18. While Paul is under arrest, he's, he's in prison. But I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied. Having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Even while in prison, we'll talk more about that in a little while. Even while in prison, Paul is being helped by them. Now, it's kind of interesting. Paul is willing to accept money from the Philippian church. Was he always willing to accept money from churches? No, he didn't take from the Corinthians. 
right? 2 Corinthians 11, starting in verse 8, he says, I robbed other churches by taking wages from them to serve you. And when I was present with you and was in need, I was not a burden to anyone. For when the brethren came from Macedonia, Philippi, they fully supplied my need, and in everything I kept myself from being a burden to you and will continue to do so. He was at Corinth, and he's like, nope, I'm not taking your money. I'm not doing it. Philippi sends a gift. Oh, thanks. Why is there this difference? Attitude might be? The relationship that they have. Like, they're so close, and he loves them so much, and they've really been in it together that he feels comfortable. It's kind of the same way, like, I might take a gift from my best friend, but if it was, like, a stranger or someone questionable, I'd be like, eh. Okay, yeah. I have a motive. Yeah. yeah, I think the motive. Yeah, I think, I think more more along the line that um, the attitude of the giving, mm-hmm. right? If if the Corinthian church was giving, um, and I mean the Corinthian church was really messed up, right? But uh, the attitude from the very beginning with Lydia was, "I'm not here to serve you," right? So, yeah, John. I was going to say, could the fact that the Corinthian church was the most problematic church, and he had issues mm-hmm. with them always correcting them, rebuking, and got contentious where he has, it's exactly the opposite with the Philippian church. So I don't know specifically, but could that dynamic be at play as to why he wouldn't take money from the Corinthians? Yeah. I, I think it's a little bit of all of the above. With the Corinthians, he's got a whole bunch of problems he wants them to resolve, and he'd rather them focus on that than try to give him. But I think the other side of that is also the affection. If someone I know comes and offers to help me, it's one thing. But if it's someone that I don't know, I'm a little less inclined. And having that relationship, and and I think this would be a good example of, I've got a deep personal relationship with this person, and I'm willing to accept accept a gift from them. Uh, one commentator said, only friends who lay deep in his love and confidence would Paul have received gifts of money. We can treasure his tenderness for them by the strength of the principle which absolutely forbade him to take such help from others. He not only knew that by them he would never be misunderstood, but he could not find it in his heart to refuse what they offered. He had a deep, deep relationship with this church, and they loved him, he loved them, and they just couldn't get enough. Okay. Here's a question. When did Paul write this letter? Well, you should know part of the answer to that question. Where was Paul when he wrote it? He was in prison while in Rome. Okay. Now that gets a little dicey on when exactly was he in prison and what dates. And I'll, I'll tell you what the dates that I found. And So we know this was in his first Roman imprisonment. The first Roman imprisonment started towards the end of Acts. Acts actually ends with him in prison. And we also know that this was somewhere near the end of his imprisonment. And I think we talked about this when we did the overview of the prison epistles. Um, chapter 2, verse 23 of Philippians. He's, he says, Therefore I, I hope to send him immediately as soon as I know how things go with me. He's expecting that at some point he's going to find out what the results of his case will be. The court has now taken up his case. He's expecting to see the emperor, the really nice guy Nero, 
verse 24, and I trust in the Lord that I myself also will be coming shortly. So what he's hearing from the court is, hey, things are looking good, good chance you're going to get released, everything's going to be okay. The only way that would be true, because that wasn't true when he wrote to the Ephesians, that wasn't true when he wrote to the Colossians, the only way that would be true is if he's coming toward the end of his imprisonment. We also know that somehow the Philippians are told that Paul is imprisoned in Rome, that news has made it to Philippi, and they now know that he's in prison. And Roman prisons weren't exactly the most enjoyable. And they send a gift to Paul in the hands of Epaphroditus. Philippians 4, verse 10. But I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at least you have received, you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but lacked the opportunity. Before you had you were concerned for me, but you didn't realize where I was. You didn't realize how much I needed help. So you didn't have an opportunity to help me. Verse 14. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. By giving to me, by sacrificing your money for me, you have shared in my affliction. You've done well. Verse 18, we read this a minute ago, but I have received everything in full and have abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphrodite what you have sent. And so they not only sent a gift, but they sent more than what he needed. He was amply supplied. Now his friend Epaphroditus goes with, takes this gift to him. So Epaphroditus is the messenger. But when he gets there and he delivers the gift, Epaphroditus gets sick. He wants to go home. But he can't now because he's sick. Chapter 2, verse 26. Because he, Epaphroditus, was longing for you all and was distressed because you heard that he was sick. For indeed he was sick to the point of death, but God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, so that I would not have sorrow upon sorrow. Epaphroditus was sick. He was to the point of death. God saved him. So now I don't have to be in prison and mourn the loss of my friend. And once Epaphroditus is healed, Paul sends him back to Philippi with this letter, the letter of the Philippians. How do we know that? Verse 25 of chapter 2. But I thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger and minister to my need. He's the messenger who brought back this letter to the Philippians. And all of this was occurring during Paul's first imprisonment in Rome. This letter was delivered by itself. Um likely toward the end of his imprisonment. Now, what are the dates for this letter? Well, it depends on who you read. The liberals would put this letter all the way into the 80s. 80-something AD. Why is that not possible? That would be really late for the first imprisonment. True. When did he die? In the 90s? Mm-mm. You're on it. He, he died. He's long dead by the 80s. 67, 68, depending on who you, who you read, is when Paul died. So if this book was written in the 80s, it was not written by Paul. 
And we've already talked about the evidence for Paul's authorship of all four of these books. So this is written by Paul, so the 80s can't be. Conservative estimates are somewhere between 59 and 63. So Edmund Hebert dates it somewhere around 63 AD. Uh, if you look at MacArthur, I think I looked at Guthrie, they both date it at around 61. But if you're early 60s, you're probably in the ballpark. All right. Any questions so far? Okay. What was Paul's purpose for writing? This is from Dr. Essex. So don't think I wrote this because I didn't. <laughs> Paul rejoiced in the Philippians' partnership in the gospel and exhorted them to be better gospel partners by walking in unity with one another and holding the gospel in steadfastness against the opponents of the faith. It's a basic idea of the purpose of Paul's writing. Partner with me in the gospel. Be good partners with me by living holy lives and reject the false stuff. Make sense? That's, that's his goal. And I want you to see some of this partnership language. Go back to Philippians chapter 1. We've looked at these, but I want you to... Maybe you heard it the first time. Verse 5, listen for the partnership. In view of your participation in the gospel... Verse 7, towards the very end of that verse, you are all partakers of grace with me. Chapter 1, verse 19. For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Through your prayers, through your giving, you have partnered with me in this ministry. And now as partners in the ministry, I want you to live a certain way so you can be the most effective. Because you can't be effective in gospel ministry and be immoral and unholy. Chapter 1, verse 27. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Verse 27, chapter 1. Notice the word conduct. Only conduct yourselves. That Greek term, this is the only place it's used. It refers to being a good citizen. It's not just talking about behaving well. It's behaving well as a citizen of this nation or of this city. It would be like someone coming to you and saying, hey, look, you really ought to vote because you're a good citizen of the United States. Only here he says, look, you need to be a good citizen. And you need to conduct yourself as a citizen. A citizen of what? A citizen of Philippi? No. Chapter 3, verse 20. For our citizenship is in heaven. Now think about this. You have a Roman citizen, Paul, writing to people who live in Rome, in the, Rome, in the Roman Empire, and who are very proud citizens of Rome. And he turns to them and says, look, I know how proud you are about being a Roman citizen, but I want you to think about the fact that you are a citizen of heaven. And if you behave a certain way because of your citizenship in Rome, behave a certain way because of your citizenship in heaven. And he appeals to their citizenship and says, you ought to behave differently. And in fact, chapter 4, verse 2, he says, your names are written in the book of life. 4-3. 4-3. Chapter 2, 
He then exhorts them to live in unity. Chapter 2, verse 1, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. How do you maintain unity? Humility. Seeing others is more important than yourself. And he says, that's what I want to encourage you to keep doing. Be humble. See each other as more important than yourself. And then he gives them an example. And who's the example? Christ. This is a well-known passage. For the sake of time, I'm not going to read the passage. But we do have an interpretive challenge. Look at verse 6. Who, speaking of Jesus, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Anybody know what the controversy is here? Yeah, he emptied himself. This is the issue of the kenosis. Kenosis comes from the Greek word kanao. Kanao means to empty. And the question here is when he says he emptied himself, what does that mean? What is he talking about? What does it mean to empty himself? And there are a couple of different views. One view says he emptied himself of his deity. That is, he ceased to be divine. Like he laid it aside for a while and he became just a man. I already see some people's eyebrows getting furled on that one. That's a good sign. It seems impossible Yeah. Another one says it's a renunciation of divine privileges. That he laid aside his divine prerogatives. We'll talk about that in a minute. And the final view is this is deity taking on humanity. Okay, so I think all of us agree the first one is not an option. Can we just set that aside? I don't need to talk about that anymore. Okay. So he didn't empty himself of his deity. If that was possible, then he was never God to begin with. Okay, so what about this one? The renunciation of divine privileges. This is actually kind of popular. It's popular because of the people who teach it are very popular. What exactly What it means is Jesus, as God, would have certain abilities that he doesn't act on. He has certain rights that he doesn't claim for himself. And he lays aside not the ability to do it, but his willingness and his desire to do it, and he just stops exercising that, that power. Let me show you one person who holds to this. John MacArthur. The Son of God, this is from his commentary, the Son of God emptied himself of five divine rights. I'm only going to give you three. Uh, first, he temporarily divested himself of his divine glory. That would be the outward manifestation of glory. Second, Jesus emptied himself of independent divine authority. Third, Jesus emptied himself of the voluntary exercise of some of his divine attributes, though not the essence of his deity. He did not stop being omniscient, om omnipresent, omnipotent, or immutable. He chose not to exercise the full limit of those attributes during his earthly life and ministry. Now, I have a little bit of a problem with this. 
because where in the Bible do you find Jesus refusing to use his omniscience? For example, the fig tree. The fig tree. Or when, when Jesus saw one of the disciples underneath the tree, and he like saw them, and then they like, yeah, they're like well, right? The sign of omniscience, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, there is there is a part where he says, uh, where he asks the disciples, asking, you know, can I sit over here on your left or right? And he says, it's not for me to know. Yeah, it's not mine to give, yeah. right? And what about when he says they ask him when this is going to happen? He says, no one knows. By the Father? Oh, yeah. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that's a relinquishing of his omniscience or no, laying no, no, no. aside his omniscience. This she doesn't say that after the resurrection. Yeah, it's not for you to know times and seasons. Yeah, I would say that's part of his... Yeah, that's not a relinquishing. It's not a relinquishing of his, um, his omniscience. I think, he I think he chooses not to yeah. exercise it. That's what, um, that's what MacArthur holds. Okay. That he chooses not to exercise it, and he no longer acts on it. Um, Luke five twenty two, he says, um, "But Jesus, aware of their reasonings, answered and said to them." Aware of their reasonings is another way of saying he's reading their minds. <laughs> yeah. He does. He does choose to do it. Though. Yeah. Luke six verse eight. But he knew what they were thinking. John two twenty four. He says he knew what was in all men. He didn't need anyone to testify of what man is. Mm-hmm. He knows their thoughts, he knows their their beliefs, their thinking, their reasoning. And if Jesus laid aside his omnipotence, how did he do the miracles? Right. How did he, <laughs> he raise Lazarus from the dead? Well, he was holding everything together. I was just about to go there. You're reading my notes again. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Wonderful. Yes. How did he do that? Colossians 1.17 He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. If he laid aside the full exercise of his omnipotence, who's holding it all together? Uh, Colossians 1.17 Who's holding it all together? If it's not him. And where in the Bible do you find any statement that says Jesus relinquished any of his privileges? It's not there. And it's not demanded of the text. Look at verse 6. There's a phrase I want you to look at. He existed in the form of God. Verse 7. Taking the form of a bondservant. When we talk about the kenosis and Jesus emptying himself, we need to define it by what the text says. And there's nothing theologically wrong if you want to say, well, Jesus chose not to exercise his omniscience or chose not to exercise this. There's nothing wrong with that. But we can't say that's what this text means because that's not what this text says. This text says he existed in the form of God. That would be speaking about Jesus prior to the incarnation. The second person of the Trinity existed in the form of God. And after the incarnation, he existed in the form of a bondservant. Now, this word in Greek is the term morphe. Ever heard? Metamorphosis, right? Morphe refers to outward appearance. He existed in the outward appearance of God. He existed taking on the outward appearance 
of a bond slave. That's what the text says. This is talking about his outward appearance. When Jesus emptied himself, he didn't empty himself of his divine privileges, of his deity, of his ability or his willingness to use his attributes. He just hid them, right? The outward appearance changed. Nothing changed as far as his ability to use, exercise, or control any of his attributes. This veiling of his outward appearance was temporarily removed. When was it temporarily removed? Transfiguration. Jesus changed the outward appearance. Matthew 17, Luke 9 says he became bright, a bright white light. He was white as lightning. That's pretty bright. <laughs> and when he went back to heaven and it was glorified again, remember John 17, 5? Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. It's not that he lost his glory. It's that he veiled it in flesh. Because if he wouldn't have, well, he'd kill everybody. Nobody could be in his presence. He didn't give up anything. He veiled his glory in human flesh. Remember Isaiah 53? Verse 2, For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He didn't lose anything. He didn't divest himself of anything. He just veiled what he actually, his full glory. Does that make sense? Does that clear it up? So I, I think the last, the last option, DED taking on humanity is probably your best, your best option. Okay. All right. Well, we are out of time. We're actually a little over time. So let me pray and we'll be done. Father, we thank you so much for the book of Philippians. Uh, we thank you that um, Christ has come, that God in the flesh has walked among us. Uh, we are so thankful that we worship a God that uh, exceeds our understanding. He exceeds our knowledge, our ability to comprehend the depths of who you are and what you are. That Christ is so glorious and so wonderful that we will spend all of eternity just trying to grasp uh, your true nature. And so we worship you for who you are, and we ask that you'd be with us this morning. We ask this in his name. Amen.